So hello and welcome to the Simon Goose podcast. We're here probably in a very apt place, I think, for this particular podcast. We've come to Scottstar, which is um, Scotland's emergency pre-hospital retrieval um, service. Um, and we're here with the, the founder of that service and the lead of that service to talk about communication. And I imagine communication, although it has profound importance for every aspect of healthcare, I suspect it probably has um, even more um, kind of importance in the pre-hospital environment. And we're going to talk a little bit, bit about that today, but I thought I would start by letting Stephen introduce himself. Stephen, thank you very much for having me here. And if you want to tell the listeners who you are and what your background is. Yeah, sure. My name's Stephen Hearns and I'm a consultant in emergency medicine. I work at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley. And for the past 15 or so years, I've been the lead consultant for the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service in, in Scotland. Uh, and in addition to that, um, I've got a, a voluntary role as being uh, a member of the mountain rescue team in, in Arakar. And so we're here to talk about communication, isn't that right? So when did you start thinking about it and why? Why do you think it's important? Well, about four years ago uh, in the retrieval service, we started carrying and using badge cameras. And we use those to film all of our pre-hospital and retrieval uh, emergency anaesthetics. And when we actually started looking at the footage of those, it became quite clear that although we thought we were communicating effectively when we were under pressure at scenes, there were lots of instances where we could have done uh, quite a bit better in terms of uh, the, the standard and the quality of communication uh, on those jobs. And it kind of seems a little bit funny that 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 it's even been as recently as that. Like, I, th- I think, it, would it be fair to say, and this is my basic understanding of this topic, um, is that we're only really, in the last few years, very much increasingly thinking about communication and its relevance and importance in healthcare, yet we've been doing this job for a long time. And I think anyone on the outside looking in would think communication must be such an essential part. But we didn't really give it a lot of consideration. Is that fair to say? It's only really been recently that we're now starting to see why it's important and the impact it can have on, on healthcare delivery. Yes, I, I would fully agree with that. It's really only in the past decade that we have begun to realise the importance of human factors uh, in general in healthcare and how they um, affect behaviour and indeed the, the exchange of, of information between healthcare professionals and uh, between healthcare professionals and, and patients. We've got a large amount of information coming in to us visually, audibly, um, in terms of data that we need to process and make decisions. So it's absolutely essential that information that's being passed to us by our colleagues um, is accurate, uh, it's well structured and it's communicated to us uh, in a clear manner in order that we um, receive that information accurately and we can process it to help us make those decisions uh, correctly. And it's probably, as you've alluded to, we probably all in some degrees don't do it as well as we should. And it's only when you actually record it and watch it back that you realise that it is suboptimal a lot of the time. Is that fair? 
That was certainly the case uh, my own experience and uh, indeed my colleagues and, and the rest of the retrieval team that uh, we had no insight uh, into how at times our communication was, was so poor uh, and indeed that there was so much potential for that to be uh, improved when we were actually on scene looking after patients, uh, especially when we were as part of a, a multidisciplinary team uh, with other individuals that we possibly hadn't worked with before. So why do you think it is suboptimal? I think there are three factors which compromise our ability to communicate effectively when we're under pressure. And those are time limitations, there is our limited cognitive capacity, and there is cognitive appraisal, how we are actually um, perceiving the situation and and reacting to it. So taking the first one of those um, time In pressured situations, there's always limited time for communication. And that means that people who are speaking to us don't tend uh, to take the time to plan what they're going to say before they start communicating with us. And that can often mean that uh, communication with us is unstructured uh, and rushed, and that can lead to uh, confusion. In normal circumstances as well, if someone says something to us and there's ambiguity or it sounds potentially confusing, then we would take the the time to question that and to clarify the information they've given to us. But in a high-pressured situation, there might not be the time to to do that. So we take on board what they say to us. um, It might not be accurate and that might lead to uh, erroneous decision-making subsequently. The other thing is that we have to be aware of is cognitive capacity. We have all got a limited cognitive bandwidth. And in high pressure situations, we might be concentrating on what we're seeing in front of us. It might be concentrating uh, on trying to process information to make a decision. And we might not have sufficient spare cognitive capacity to actively listen to people uh, who are trying to tell us uh, information, which is important. And then the final thing is cognitive appraisal. When we enter a high-pressure situation, how we perceive that that situation can easily lead to uh, a state of stress or a state of overloaded frazzle uh, within uh, ourselves. And that means that our ability to to take on board additional information is compromised. And it's very easy when we are stressed or we're frazzled just to become really task fixated uh, on what we're seeing in front of us or to be easily distracted and not actually to, to take the time and focus on people who are trying to pass us information verbally. So in terms of um, bad communication, does it impact on the delivery of, of, of the skill, I, I guess? What I'm trying to say is when you look back at your videos and you see evidence of bad communication, what impact is that having on the performance, do you think? What, what are the main kind of sequelae of, of, of bad communication? So uh, bad communication, particularly at uh, pre-hospital scenes, can lead to erroneous decision-making, which can affect patient care. And it can also lead to practical procedures being carried out uh, incorrectly and sometimes unsafely. For example, I was at a road traffic collision recently with a multiply injured patient and the retrieval practitioner was with me 
we made a clear plan that after we anaesthetised and ventilated the patient that the retrieval practitioner was going to carry out a thoracostomy um, because the patient um, had a pneumothorax. And we anaesthetised the patient. I asked the retrieval practitioner to move on to carry out the thoracostomy and uh, about a minute later he was about to carry out the thoracostomy on the the left side of the patient's chest, but indeed the th- the pneumothorax was on the, the right side. Um, so I stopped him at that point and he carried out the um, procedure correctly on the right side. But it was only when we got back to base and as part of our debrief, we were looking at the badge camera footage. And indeed, I had communicated to the retrieval practitioner that the thoracostomy should be carried out on the right side. But Although he was only one metre away from me, at that point he was completely heads in and task fixated on setting up all the equipment for the the emergency anaesthesia. So I communicated it, but he did not actually have the cognitive bandwidth to at that time to receive the information and he had focused all of his attention on preparing the, the equipment. So although it was clearly communicated to him, he really wasn't in a state where he could um, receive that information. And I guess we'll come to it in a wee bit later, but you thought it had been received, but there was no kind of confirmation that it had been Absolutely, received. Absolutely, We'll yeah. come to that in a wee yeah. bit later. So how do you think we can improve? What, what have you gained in your experience that, that would help both pre-hospital and emergency physicians? How can we get better at communication? There's a number of tools that we can use Um, One thing is to take just a moment to prepare what we're going to say uh, in terms of content, structure and order before we actually start um, passing information to to someone else to try and make sure that it's it's accurate, uh, it's comprehensive and it's concise. The next thing we can do is trying to identify the right moment for communication, especially to the leader of the team who has got a lot going on and has a limited cognitive bandwidth. So throughout any resuscitation or pre-hospital scene, there will be changes of of tempo, there will be lulls um, in activity when those are good times to approach that person and pass information to them. But even more than that, making sure that that person um, is in the right state of mind to actually receive the information. So actually saying to them, I've got something to tell you. Are you ready to listen to me? Using their first name, putting your hand on their shoulder, making sure that you've got eye contact with them, making sure that you've got their full attention before you, you start speaking. And there are different techniques for, for, um, communicating, um, particularly are um, important pieces of information such as as numbers. You can um, repeat those or repeat them using a, a, a different form. For example, if we're handing over a patient in the emergency department and I've given someone 16 milligrams of morphine, I might say I've given him 16 milligrams of morphine, one six milligrams to emphasize that. Uh, Another technique that uh, is very useful, particularly in in high stress and high stakes situations, um, is closed loop communication, 
where we pass information to another person, but we expect them to repeat that information back to us to confirm that they have received it and they have received that accurately. And that's a, a very common tool that's used by pilots when they are communicating with air traffic control. They will actually read back to air traffic control the information that's been passed to them. Can I ask you about jargon? And what I mean by that is, is it a good thing? In time-pressured situations, is it good to have acronyms and short, concise messages? Or can they be confusing for people? What, what, what's the best way to deliver kind of messages? You did mention there the 161616. Any other kind of examples of, of the right way to deliver information between people? Jargon and keywords can be a highly effective way of communicating within a team. But there are risks associated with using jargon and, and keywords, um, particularly if you are working as part of a flash team uh, and a multidisciplinary team. So if you're just working with your own colleagues who you are used to working with, jargon is a very concise uh, method of uh communicating information which is unambiguous so you've got a, um, a an unambiguous short way uh, of communicating that that information that your colleagues are going to understand completely the danger however is that if you're working uh, with other colleagues who are not part of your core team you might think that they understand that jargon but they might misinterpret it or they might not understand it, but feel empowered to speak up and and question you and to clarify what you're meaning. I also very much like the concept of keywords within a, a team, where a, a team will have its own terminology, which conveys uh, what's happening uh, in that situation, but also... Um, leads them to take other actions. Um, I recently interviewed uh, a paramedic who used to be a sniper in the Royal Marines and he was talking a lot about um, keywords which uh, uh, the military use and one of those that he used as an example was if a military group was out on patrol um, and they um, came under attack, if one member of the team said contact right, then every member of the team knew exactly what that meant and they were drilled into performing a, an immediate action, um, each getting into a, a certain position, uh, covering an arc of fire and getting themselves into to cover. So keywords within uh, your own team, as long as they are understood, can be really effective method of communication uh, in high pressure and high stakes situations. I guess also you mentioned about being unambiguous with numbers. I presume you can do similar things with words. I remember hearing you once before talking about um, not having abbreviated terms such as isn't, you know, say is not, um, because that's unambiguous. And if it's a noisy environment, isn't could be kind of misheard or misunderstood. Um, is that something that you try to instill in your team? Do you try to avoid those kind of abbreviated terms? Yes, use, using those types of, uh, of abbreviations and you used two good examples there, um, isn't and doesn't, um, those can be very easily misinterpreted as is and, and does. 
And what we encourage in our team um, when we're speaking amongst ourselves in a high pressure situation, and especially if we're communicating by phone or by, by radio, um, is to take the time to uh, use the full words, uh, is not, does not, so that there's absolute clarity for the person that's receiving that information. So let's give a wee bit of thought to nonverbal communication, if that's okay. That's probably gets a little bit less attention, I would say, but probably in some ways equally important. Would that would that be fair to say? And what sort of impact does that have on on, on team performance and, and general communication? Nonverbal communication in high pressure situations can be extremely powerful but it can also be really negative for other members of the team, especially um, for members of the team that don't work with you regularly. And we often practice verbal communication and how we speak in, in simulations and drills, but it's pretty rare for us to actually think about how we visually come across to, to other people, um, especially when we're under pressure or indeed when we're stressed or actually in a state of frazzle. And personally, it's a thing that my colleagues have told me that I'm really not good at. Um, uh, they often say that uh, the term they use is they've been herniated by Stephen Hearns. <laughs> um, and when things are not going well and when I feel stressed, um, that's written all over my, my face. And it's a thing over time that uh, I've tried to uh, more consciously manage. So if our nonverbal communication in a, in a stress situation, if we can come across to other people that we are in control of the situation, that we're not stressed, then that is going to communicate to them a, a sense of optimism and a, a sense of, of confidence. And they are much more likely to work um, effectively with you as the, the team leader and do what needs to be done for, for the patient. The converse of that is when you are stressed and you are perceiving the situation negatively, potentially even as a, as a threat, and you are thinking this situation is not going well, then other members of the team are going to, to see that and they can perceive that you are losing control of that, that situation, uh, that you are become a, becoming anxious, becoming stressed, and th that is going to result in you losing their confidence. Um, they are much less likely to um, listen and, and follow uh, instructions, and they are much more likely to become stressed as, as well. So um, that's going to affect your personal performance, and it's really going to negatively affect the performance of the, the rest of the, the team. So being aware of what your, your facial expression is, what your, your arms are doing and what your posture is, um, is really, really important in high pressure situations. But it isn't a thing that a lot of people think about. Yeah. And it's, as, as you were saying earlier, it's such a cognitively burdened time. It's probably not the time to be thinking about it. You probably have enough so this is maybe stuff that you need to be thinking about in advance, I presume, and nearly training for. So let, let's get on to that, if you don't mind. In terms of how we actually make ourselves better communicators, better both verbal and non-verbal, what, what can we do to improve? Improving how we can communicate 
uh, personally and as a team for high pressure situations. I think we've got three phases of, of training and, and learning. Uh, the first is simply uh, awareness of the different techniques. The second is development of those techniques in simulation. And then the third stage is personal reflection and continuous uh, improvement. Now, with regard to the, the first stage, I think it's important that um, every member of a, a high-performance team actually gets some formal training in terms of face-to-face -face training, but also some written guidance uh, about the pitfalls of, of poor communication and also the different techniques that we've already talked about that they can uh, employ in a high-pressure situation. So essentially giving them a communication toolbox. And then once that they've got awareness and knowledge of those different techniques, what we can do as part of our um, uh, simulation um, is actually try to put them under increasingly pressured situations and get them to use those different tools to, uh, to communicate effectively uh, amongst the rest of the team when they're being put in increasing pressure. And then the other thing that we can do is taking the time after every resuscitation in the emergency department, after every pre-hospital job or every retrieval, to actually debrief and speak to our colleagues and ask them how well or otherwise that we actually communicated during that, that job. By far the best way to do that is live filming uh, during the resuscitation uh, or uh, during the, the retrieval that um, we can actually sit and watch and look at our nonverbal communication, uh, look at how uh, we spoke to other people, uh, the pace, the structure, the content of that, uh, and actually learn from that and identify areas where we can improve our communication for uh, the, the next similar circumstance. So giving people the, the, the tools, um, practicing those tools in simulation and then when we actually get out on, on real jobs and looking after real patients um, reflecting and trying to improve based on that experience So if you're someone listening who thinks I, I, I want to get that toolbox I have struggled to find any really good solid medically focused human factors in communication material is that fair to say is it fairly limited still is, it, is, it, is there stuff emerging how, how have you found the landscape Two people that um, I would direct uh, your listeners to are Scott Weingard and Mike Lauria, um, who are clinicians who are very much interested in, in human factors uh, and how we perform uh, under pressure. And Mike Laurie, in particular, from a, a special forces background, um, is very keen for um, the medical community to learn from the, the different communication techniques uh, that are used in the military, uh, particularly um, special forces uh, teams uh, as well. And, and a lot of what he says um, is, is highly relevant to those of us who are, are working and, and more demanding and, and acute specialties. And we'll put some links to some of that information yeah. from Scott and Cheers. Mike in, in, in the show notes. Um, and we should also mention that you have a book coming out yourself. Is that right? Is now the good time for a plug? <laughs> what, what should we expect? How, how close are we to completion? Yeah, so I became really interested in human factors and how they, they affect performance uh, in high-pressure situations 
probably over the past three or four years. And that was a result of, of working closely with uh, pilots and with um, instructors that, that we brought in to teach us about, about human factors. And what I, I really felt was that there was a, a need for a book and in, indeed a, a course for uh, for clinicians and for other emergency services, um, uh, the police, firefighters, etc., to talk about why we behave the way that we do when we're, we're under pressure, uh, what happens to us psychologically, what even happens to us physiologically, and what we can do to, to recognise those changes uh, in ourselves uh, and indeed what techniques that we can use to avoid us getting into states of, of stress and, and deteriorating performance. And if we do find ourselves in those states, uh, what techniques can we do to bring ourselves back into a, a state of high performance uh, flow? So I started putting the book together probably um, 18 months ago. And it uses um, examples from my, my own uh, um, career in emergency medicine and pre-hospital care and mountain rescue. I've interviewed a, a number of um, friends, particularly from military and aviation backgrounds, about what techniques that they use um, in, in difficult circumstances. Um, and what I've tried to do uh, also is bring in some examples from the uh, medical negligence and medical legal work that I do, where I've examined in depth where um, uh, unfortunately, patient outcome hasn't hasn't been good, and a lot of time that has been down to um, human factors, which have led to people making um, erroneous diagnosis uh, or giving people the, the the wrong treatment. Does it have a title yet? The working title is the arc uh, of performance, and um, when you draw the graph of. Um, performance against pressure um, it's a, 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 an arc and there are three phases to that disengagement um, when our performance is poor because we're, we're not under enough pressure then moving into a state of high performance flow and then the right side of the, the arc um, is a state of uh, poor performance cognitively overloaded frazzle. And any indications at this stage when that might be available? So at the moment I've finished the, the first draft and uh, I am currently sharing that with um, a few colleagues who uh, are knowledgeable about um, human factors just to, to verify the, the content. And then the, the next stage is to go through a, a more formal um, um, process of uh, getting it edited. Okay. Uh, and we are hoping to get it published before the end of the year. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll put a link in the notes when that's available. And I also noticed that you've started a website. Did I see a website recently going around Twitter? So you, you, you've got a, a place now where you're putting a lot of your, I guess, your teaching and learning on, on human factors. What, what was the name of that website again? Yeah, that's right. I've just started a, a website called corecognition.co.uk. And the idea of that um, is uh, to be a platform for blogs uh, and uh, information about um, human factors uh, and performance uh, under pressure. Uh, and indeed, hopefully in the future to uh, launch uh, a course that I'm keen to develop, um, particularly for healthcare providers and um, emergency services personnel in, in general. Okay, um, so 
if we don't mind, we'll finish with, with my question, which I always ask everyone, if you don't mind. And that's if we could take you back in time to speak to your junior self just leaving medical school. What have you gained in all your experience, both in pre-hospital and even in mountain rescue and emergency medicine? What have you gained in all your experience that would be useful to pass on to someone starting their career? So this is a question I'm asked a lot by medical students and, and junior doctors who are interested in a career in pre-hospital and, and retrieval medicine. And what I say to them is really, as a junior doctor, to really concentrate on your base specialty. Try and maintain a bit of a watching brief on what's happening um, in retrieval and, and pre-hospital care, but concentrate on being the, the, the best emergency physician, intensivist or anaesthetist that you can be. And then uh, once you're established in that, that specialty, and um, once you've got your training well underway, you've got your examinations out of the way, then start to think about pre-hospital and, and retrieval medicine. And I think as a junior doctor, I was probably too interested in pre-hospital care. I was obsessed about expedition medicine, about mountain rescue medicine, trying to get involved with it with events. And I was perhaps perceived by trainers and, and consultants um, as being more interested in pre-hospital and retrieval medicine than actually in emergency medicine. And I don't really think that did me uh, any favours. So uh, I think if you want to do pre-hospital and retrieval medicine as, as especially, which um, there's increasing scope to, to do in, in the UK, then um, concentrate on your base specialty and be the best that you can be at that and then apply that expertise um, once you've actually qualified uh, in that area. Um, so just finally, um, for those that maybe do have an interest in pre-hospital medicine, um, what where would you advise they look? Um, where, where's a good starting point for them? Yeah, so we have got a emergency medical retrieval um, service website, uh, which has got a lot, a lot of resources and a lot of information about our, our service. Um, but I would really welcome people who are interested in pre-hospital and retrieval medicine um, to come to our annual retrieval conference. Um, next year, we're actually having a what we've called uh, a retrieval week in Scotland, where um, in the same week, we're having the two-day diploma in retrieval and transfer medicine at the Royal College in Edinburgh. Uh, we're having a day of a break and then we're going to have the two-day retrieval conference in, in Glasgow. So what we're hoping is that people will come from um, different parts of the world uh, to Scotland to set the exam uh, on the Monday and Tuesday and then to, to join us for the conference on the Thursday and Friday. And what week is that? Yeah, so the retrieval week in Scotland is going to be from the 29th of April to the 3rd of May next year. Fantastic. So keep keep that in mind and put that in your diaries. Dr. Stephen Hearns, thank you very, very much for joining us today. No, listen, thank you. Communication under pressure is something that I am really passionate about and uh, I think it's uh, an area that we could all um, improve on so I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to to speak to you about it today thank Brilliant. you well we really appreciate you doing that thank you very much so many thanks to Stephen for his time uh, I think my main take-home points today are number one 
good communication is essential in high pressure situations and bad communication can lead to erroneous decision making, procedures being carried out incorrectly and generally suboptimal patient care. Number two, it is suboptimal because of limited time to pass and receive information well, limited cognitive capacity or a limited amount we can concentrate on when busy and also stress leading to reduced cognitive appraisal. Number three, things we can do to improve are take a moment to prepare what you intend to say, identify the right time to say it, ensure the receiver is ready to receive the information and ensure they have understood using closed loop communication. And finally, number four, there are three phases to developing a culture of great communication. And that is number one, to teach great techniques. Number two, to develop these in simulation. And number three, to continually improve through personal reflection, debriefing and live filming if possible. So many thanks again to Stephen. Many thanks to you for listening. Please remember to visit our website at stmungos-ed.com where the show notes will contain some relevant information that you'll have heard about in this podcast and also lots of additional resources for your enjoyment. Many, many thanks again for listening and take care.